0: The first thing you have got to have is an absolute passion. Without that, it's always just going to be a job. And it can be a job. There's nothing wrong with it being a job. There's nothing wrong with it being an enjoyable and a good job. But to really want to do it at the exclusion of everything else has to be the most important thing.
1: Welcome to With Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of Jewelry an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Hello, today's talk is called My Brilliant Career. I want to know why people choose a career in the jewellery industry when so many other professions beckon. When is that Damascene moment that you know jewellery is right for you? And there's no one better to talk about this with than Britain's best known celebrity jeweller, the designer Theo Fennell, who dabbled very early in many careers and then decided that jewellery was the one for him. And I want to know what it was that led him down that path. And I want to know what tips he has for other young people thinking about going into jewellery. I'm also going to ask his daughters, Coco Fennell, the fashion designer who has her own women's wear label, and Emerald, the actress, filmmaker, and writer and recent winner of two BAFTAs and an Oscar for her film Promising Young Woman. I want to know if they think that their father chose the right career. Can a work ethic be passed down through your DNA? That's another question I want to find out from the industrious Fennell sisters. Welcome, Theo. And where are you joining us from this morning?
0: Uh, I'm on the top floor of our sort of flagship, I suppose you call it, in the Fulham Road. Very nice view on a lovely summer's day.
1: And you've had that view for many years, haven't you? How long have you been in that building, that iconic Theo building?
0: We're actually coming up to 25, 1997, 98, so we'll... In a couple of years time, it'll be 25 years.
1: And we're going to talk about the jewellery and what is in that iconic store and the workshop. But first, I want to discuss your career. And I wanted to start with the 30th anniversary story I wrote at the time for Vogue. And in the process of writing it, I got a completely different side to the CEO Fennell I knew as the jeweller. And I found out about all these other talents that you've been hiding or not hiding to your friends and family. Um, And I thought it struck me at the time that you could have easily worked in several other professions. I mean, I talked to Rory Bremner, one of your friends about you, and he said, he's way too good at golf. I talked to the great writer, novelist, William Boyd, and he said... Theo's a polymath. If there's anybody's opinion I'd like about one of the books I've written, it's Theo's. It went on cricket. You're a portrait artist, and so I wanted to quickly find out why you didn't pursue those other talents. So, if it hadn't been jewelry, what would it, what might have it been?
0: Well, the reason I didn't pursue any of those other things was because I wasn't good enough at them. Uh, really wasn't. Uh, and I think the the, the the British tend to love a sort of an amateur who looks as if he's not taking. Uh, much trouble over things and in fact I've just written a book uh about the disasters of my life which uh is a very very long book it so happened <laughs> and uh, my music career was one of those
1: why um, what happened in your music career
0: well I, I learned the guitar as so many people did in those days uh in a week it was a great thing called learn in a week a guitar book uh and a week later I, I couldn't play the guitar, I mean, it lied. Um, But a few weeks later, I could play a few chords. And in the 60s, which it was, if you could play a few chords on the guitar, you were more of a hero than if you could, you know, go around a golf course and under par. And so I started to develop a slightly overblown idea of how good I was because I was just better than anybody else because, you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And it was only when I sort of got out of school and realised that everybody else could play the guitar better than I could, that, that, that um, it dawned on me. But I did write some songs um, which, unfortunately, each time I tried to play them to people, they said, isn't that, that um, awfully like? Yes. And i go, really? Anyway, so I realised that I was plagiarising people without knowing. So there were a lot of things that I thought I would love to do, but then I realised it's how difficult they were.
1: And you've still got, you've still got the guitar? Because you've got quite a few, haven't you? Oh, I have.
0: I mean, I do play the guitar now Um, out of earshot normally. But I I love a sing-song. I mean, I'll I'll play after dinner if anybody's up for it. And and I do play the guitar. I mean, I don't play so much now because my poor old arthritic hands aren't quite as nimble as they used to be.
1: So do you dare play in front of Andrew Lloyd Webber? Oh, many
0: times I have done, yes. We we, we, um, have very often uh, accompanied each other, him on the piano and my beautiful vocals, and very often me on the guitar and his...
1: But I read something when you talked about growing up that you said your parents were very anti-showing off and that it really wasn't seen to be done and that I wondered if that's why um, you didn't pursue show business because it might have been too much like showing off?
0: Well, I I think most of my friends would would, uh, tell you that I've I've got over the fear of showing off that (laughs) I... (laughs) I had as a youth, um, but, but on the whole it 's like so many people who who do sort of make an ask of themselves it 's started with being terribly terribly nervous and terribly shy and developing rather late and The only way I could really sort of get in on the action as it were, but was by you know playing the giddy goat, um, which I did from quite an early age, but really, with my parents it wasn 't so much. Um, asking about that they they didn't like. My father was a great fan of asking about, in fact, but it was more more being boastful or saying you were good at something. So if a Nobel Prize winner had said, you know, he was quite good at physics, um, they'd have thought he was going a little bit too far. But
1: I just wondered if you felt thwarted in that direction, which is why you seem to attract, you know, you've got that that tagline that goes with you, celebrity jeweller, why you've attracted so many show business people around you. I mean, if one comes to one of your shows, it's Hugh Grant, it's Tracy Emin, it's um, Joe Brand looking for something, as she said, for under 20 quid. She'd be lucky. Bob Geldof, Elton John. You know, you seem to be naturally drawn to to these people. Yes,
0: it's been very strange. I mean, every time I sort of of, uh, appear to be... Uh, down on on what I've done in life. Louise always says, I don't think there's any other thing you could have done which would have uh, made such sort of a variety of friends. Because it's not only those people, it's obviously a lot more. And it's been an extraordinary thing in that I think because I love music and because I love asking about it and because I'm not by nature a sycophant, it's been possible to be real friends with these people as part for anything else. It's just what I do. And I think it, it is part entertainment. I mean, I think, you know, if you're designing something that's quite as theatrical as as, as what I do for a living, it, it does bring you into touch with many of these people and, and through one you meet another and all that sort of stuff. So
1: you didn't follow your sisters to Oxford. I didn't. You no. went to art school. And I wondered, how did this sort of conversion come about one day that you realised the career had to be jewellery?
0: I was very lucky to go to um, what was then York Art School. It was a fantastic foundation course, one of the old-fashioned ones, where you did a bit of pottery, a bit of um, ceramics, a bit of sculpture, a bit of drawing, a a bit of everything. And, in fact, I remember the first time that a nude model appeared in front of me. I thought there was some terrible mistake. I was so embarrassed at the idea of looking at this person and drawing them in the nude. It was appalling. But it was a fantastic grounding because I tried everything and I realised that I was drawn mostly to representative uh, art. And I thought I might be a portrait painter, Um, except I couldn't get likeness, which is always a huge drawback for a a portrait painter. But what I did start to do was get involved in sort of pop art and and, and things that were bright and and, and, uh, I guess attractive, very obviously attractive, so I loved, Hockney's work, I love Peter Blake's work and they were sort of my big heroes at the time and I thought there might be a career in something like you know LP covers or book covers or even you know perhaps in advertising, in in, in sort of that kind of commercial design things but I came down to London, uh, I went to the Barm Shore and did three years there well I say three years there it, it, took three years to do it, but I was probably only there about three months each year. Um, I was immensely lazy, I'm afraid. And there were too many other things that I found, I found attractive. I mean, I, I, I loved just being around. I mean, asking about was my speciality and, and I became incredibly proficient at it. And I was asked to a lot of parties and things. So it was very difficult to, to get one's mind. And I realized that I wasn't going to be a tortured artist, or even a, an untortured artist, because I didn't have that extraordinary commitment to painting that, that the people around me that were really good did have. And I, I wasn't good enough. Uh, again, like you know, various other things, I could get by, I could do something that people went, ooh, golly, that's clever. But it really wasn't. I mean, if you showed it to an artist, they'd go, um, you know, start again.
1: Is it true, Theo? that you were the first pupil from Eton to go to art college?
0: No one, have, certainly of my generation, as it were, but, you know, the, the world had burst into into flower, as it were. I mean, had it been ten years earlier, had it been the sort of late 50s, early 60s, I would have, you know, gone into the army or I'd have gone to Oxford or i had done something of the sort. I mean, it would never have been countenance for me to go to art school and it really wouldn't have seemed like... Uh, in any way, a a future. But things had changed so much in those years that going to art school was really thought of as as being incredibly adventurous. Um, It also had the the great um, advantage that that you were treated as a sort of artist monkey, therefore your behaviour was judged by artistic standards rather than by polite society standards. So if you behaved badly, people would say, of course, he's very creative, he's an artist, and one got away with murder.
1: And so tell me this moment, this moment that you decided it was jewellery.
0: Well, silver really became before jewellery because I got to the stage where I was that person people discuss at lunch, you know, at, and, and at breakfast, even worse. You know, What are we going to do with Theo, even when I was there? And my great-aunt Mary, who is a great influence in my life, uh, because her husband, who's also my godfather, but died when I was two, actually paid for my education she found a, a, an advertisement from the lady magazine, which she gave me. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to become a valet or, you know, I'm going to become somebody's butler or footman or something, or a nanny. And um, it turned out to be for a company called Barnard, uh, Edward Barnard & Sons, which were then the foremost... Um, silversmiths in in the country, and they, they made all the silver for the great retail names like Garrards and Asprey's and those days and Collingwoods and Long and the uh, They were the, really the workshops for all those people, and they had over the years made all the things like you know the Americas Cup and the the FA Cup and whatever. And I went along with foreboding because you know the advertisement was 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 ambiguous to say the least. It said you know old family firm a uh, Sikh young man of, of gentle background, pleasing aspect and artistic leanings to be taught by old men. And nowadays, one might run for the hills, but in those days, I was full of daring do and, and one didn't think about such things. So I arrived there to my amazement at the end of the interview and I had hair down to my, you know, to, to my chest and I'd sort of put on a suit so I think it was my grandfather's that fitted in only two places and a tie and a, a pretty nasty old shirt to try and look the part. And they said afterwards, well, you know, we think you're absolutely right for us. Would you like the job? I hadn't been asked, how, you know, what the terms are anything were. And I said, absolutely. So that's why, really, that was complete kismet. I mean, I, I got offered that job in these great silversmiths. And having been there a few weeks, I guess, they so got me to get out of the workshop to start talking to the people in the workshop and to the Eric, the artist who did all the paint ups. And I just found that it was the most Damascene moment. I suddenly saw all these people working together, having a wonderful time, bashing around like sort of schoolboys. And at the end of it, out came this amazing candelabra or this amazing sort of teapot or trophy, you know, the FA Cup trophy. At the end of of the production line. And they all seemed to be enjoying themselves so much and working together in such a nice way that I thought, this is, this is real fun. I could do this.
1: And then you went from there into jewellery.
0: Yes, it was in Hatton Garden. The workshops were in Hatton Garden. So every lunch, I would go down to the one tonne or to the, the Rays, and the people who are very old remember those places. Um, strippers on Fridays, which you wouldn't get nowadays. Free with a pint of beer and a pie. <laughs> Very, very upmarket. So we, I used to go down there and I'd meet, you know, fellow members of the trade, I guess. And I began to meet, you know, spinners and engravers and chasers and then jewelers a lot. And, and after not very long at Barnard's, to be honest, after about two years, I thought, well, I've learned everything. I, I know everything about everything. So in a, in a moment of sort of bravado, I left. I'd had one quite big, um, commission, which was to make a whole lot of, uh, goblets, silver goblets for the Tesson County cricket board. And so I left with this order and I rented what was a sort of studio and workshop over the road, uh, and office, I suppose. And I was going to get everything made by artworkers, workers, which taught me more about, you know, production and how these things are made than you can ever imagine once you have to do it yourself and learn yourself. But attached to it was this workshop with two craftsmen in it. One who is um, Fritz, uh, who is a pure, and the last I've ever seen, pure craftsman who could cut and polish his own stones, mill his own metal, make his own jewellery, set it, make the findings, do absolutely everything. Quite extraordinary. And I sat down next to him before, always before quarter to three, when he disappeared to the pub and came back incapable of doing anything and I sort of learnt by, I suppose, osmosis. I learnt how to make jewellery, how it was made, all the other sort of peripheral skills and things that were needed. And
1: so fast track, in 1981 you open your first shop, not where you are now in your flagship but also on the Fulham Road. What made you want your own store?
0: Well, Really convenience, what, what happened was that I, I started to design jewellery and we made it. And to begin with, I'd sell it in, in you know, Portobello Road or I'd sell it in uh, Kensington Market. And after a bit, it became just too impossible to sort of uh, do both, to sit at the bench and, and, and or design things and be in the store and then to go out and sell them. And a lot of sort of friends and friends of friends started to commission pieces uh, and their parents, more importantly because they had more money, started to commission pieces. And they didn't want to come to Hatton Garden. They didn't want to sweat over to Hatton Garden. And I was spending most evenings going around with the briefcase, seeing people in their houses and um, having a couple of drinks and seeing somebody else in another house and having a couple of drinks. And then uh, by the time I saw the last person, I could hardly uh, get the piece of jewellery out of the bag. And so we thought, or I thought, I'll... If I get a shop near where I live, and I live just down the road in, in uh, Evelyn Gardens in those days. So
1: do you remember the first piece of jewellery you made for the store?
0: For the store? Yes, the very, very first piece of jewellery we made for the store was a Bombay ring. Uh, and it was, uh, it was unusual because it was a Tanzanite and diamond Bombay ring. And the three things that I discovered working with the people I was working with is they didn't want silver jewellery as they did in in Portobello Road and things, they only wanted 18 carat. And very, very few shops in those days only did 18 carat. The vast majority of shops, the vast majority of English jewellery, British jewellery, was nine carat gold. Pearls, gate bracelets, sovereign rings, signet rings, string of pearls. I mean, the the, the British and their jewellery in those days was unbelievably unadventurous and very, very... Dull. And I thought, well, I'll never be able to to um, to compete with these people. I won't be able to have diamond rings and emerald and sapphire rings, and I won't be able to have... So I'll just do 18 carat and semi-precious to begin with and see how that goes. And that Bombay ring sold literally the next day, and I thought, this is easy, because we literally opened the doors. I mean, it was an old Victoria wine shop, and we painted the outside of the shop white with blue lines and Fennell in... in in blue, and put a few things in the window. We had to borrow a few things. And I put some of my, uh, my mother's jewelry in the window, anything we could find, just because otherwise it, it just wasn't full.
1: I was thinking about this, Theo, about you starting in the 80s and into the sort of landscape that you were entering, that, you know, people didn't, you know, computers were just becoming kind of personal. Music was just becoming portable. Telephones were just starting to be mobile. And women were entering the workforce really in a major way for the first time and beginning to buy jewellery for themselves, which that must have given you a good push to... um, attract these women in to buy for themselves?
0: I don't quite know what you mean by attracting women to... Sorry,
1: attract women with the guitar. Did you go out with your guitar I'll and attract them I stand outside and lift shop. my trouser leg <laughs> up
0: and say, would you like to come into the shop? Uh, women buying jewellery was the, the biggest single thing for us because, uh, as you've just pointed out, you know, the, the, the landscape was totally different. It was very old-fashioned uh, and it was very misogynist. Because a woman going into a jewellery store in those days to buy something for herself was almost seen as a failure. You know, a woman who had to buy jewellery for herself would be like a woman going into a restaurant on her own and having dinner on her own or lunch on her own. In those days, it was not so much frowned on, but thought of as, as, as rather sad. And they really hadn't caught up with the whole movement, the social movement of, of, of women being their own bosses and women making up their own minds and wanting to buy things for themselves. So, you know, it was was wonderful for us because there was this this whole kind of stratum of women who knew their own mind, who knew what they wanted to buy, knew what they wanted to make in many cases, who were happy to experiment, where the men who might have bought them jewellery would never experiment. They'd buy them a string of pearls or a pair of of pearl earrings or, you know, a a stud, um, a pair of studs or something. And when they wanted to, you know, uh, give them an engagement ring, it would nearly always either be a three-stone diamond ring or a sapphire and diamond cluster. So we were very much the alternative. And, you know, we, we realized that that was our métier, that was our direction, where we felt most comfortable. And we were able to sit down with those people and talk to them and make them jewellery or um, customise something you already had or, or sell them something off the peg. It was, it was That was the really big first big turning point.
1: And I think also the fact, as you alluded to, it was very formal. It was still this sort of formality in, in the jewellery terms of sort of diamonds and either a sapphire, ruby and emerald. And I think you're responsible for bringing in new material and new colour and making it part of the zeitgeist at that time. I remember when I wrote this story for Vogue on your anniversary, I talked to Martin Downer, who was then um, running um, the jewellery department at Sotheby's, and he said people who very much encapsulate their era and their zeitgeist um, are people who who are collectible and are very collectible in the future. And I think, you know, you bought in colour. Nobody talked about periba tourmalines. Yeah. People talk about them now. Everyone covers has paribas in their collection. But there were none. And you you sought out green garnets, peribas, really unusual stones, unusual colours that people hadn't seen before.
0: Yes, I mean I I I loved the colour. I loved the, the uh, the life of them. And I think, you know, that in, in this country, very few people were wearing anything bold, if you like. And those who did were people who were sort of slightly jet-setty. You know, they, they shopped in Milan or Rome or they shopped in Paris. And, of course, the Americans were wearing huge jewellery then and had been since you know, the 60s and 70s. And really from, I suppose, the 30s, we hadn't had in this country a sort of stratum of society or stratum of anything that wanted to engage with new things until we suddenly got, if you like, the music industry, we suddenly got the entertainment industry, we suddenly got the creative industries, wanting to, to, to invent things for themselves. They didn't just want to buy a Georgian house and fill it with Georgian things and old pictures and what have you and buy second-hand and old jewellery. They wanted to reinvent things. They wanted to have things painted for themselves. They wanted to have things designed for them. And they wanted to buy jewellery that sort of had uh, some heft for them. And those, in those days, very uh, novel stones, like, as you say, green garnets and paraebas and, uh well, Tanzanites, I guess, all those things, just seemed to be so new and lively and gave one so much more breadth to do things. You know, there were other people doing big gold jewelry and there were people mainly from abroad. Uh, you know, Andrew Greener obviously was, was uh, before me and had and, and sort of broken the ice, Charles the Temple and those sort of people. And of course, Elizabeth Gage, uh, who's a brilliant woman, uh, all broken the ice. So for us, it was a question of, of a probably a younger audience than they had, and a more creative audience, you know, and and 70%, 75% of our clients in those days were women, as they probably still are. And, you know, we had a big gay following, uh, which was fantastic. And in the 80s, when things had suddenly, you know, opened up and and, and men felt able to to wear slightly more outrageous jewellery, you know, it it, it was... um, it was a big white canvas. Well,
1: your mind certainly got working for your show off exhibition in 2007, held at the Royal Academy of Arts. And I wrote at the time in Vogue it was a real seminal moment in exhibiting jewellery and the most exciting show that we'd had in London for years. Um, it was a fantastic mix of installations, dioramas, paintings, presentations each centering around um, an exquisite piece of jewellery. Um, what was the inspiration behind that for you?
0: The, well, the thought process behind it was how people, on the whole, look at jewellery. They either look at it in a, in, in a shop window or they look at it in a pack shot in a magazine. Occasionally they look at it in a museum, much too little, I think, but they don't really look at it... Uh, in a way that that is all encompassing, you know, how it works, how it is, how much work must have gone into it. And so what I was trying to do is have a series of exhibits that brought your eye to the hero of the piece, which was the ring or the earrings, whatever it was. So we had, for instance, a life-size electric chair unit with uh, a woman in the electric chair with a obviously the bag over her head, so everything had that terrible kind of of gothic quality that that we've seen in photographs but never seen in real life of a woman sitting there with her legs strapped to the thing. But on her finger was this huge pariba, twenty four carat perfect pariba with a light on it. So that every now and again, when the electric chair lit up as it were and it flashed, there was this ring and everything went dark for a moment apart from the ring and then it went light again. And it focused everybody onto the ring.
1: At this point, I'm going to ask Theo's daughter, Coco Funnell, who's a fashion designer with a women's wear label. I want to
2: know, Coco, do you have to help your father? Do you guide him with what's happening in fashion? I don't guide him in what's happening in fashion because I think he's very fashionable himself and has a really great sense of style. Um, I think we've all got quite a sort of similar aesthetic of things we like, but I don't feel like I'm keeping him hip hop happening. (laughs) Coco, has your father influenced your work ethic at all? Um, he's definitely influenced my work ethic and that is just by sort of showing me that you can have your own business and that you can run your own business and do creative things and make it into a viable career option, um... And I just, yeah, I think everything he's done is amazing. okay, do you ever pop into the workshop to see what's being worked on? I do sometimes pop into the workshop when I'm around at Dad's and I love um, seeing all of the pieces and how they're made and the amazing craftsmanship that goes into it. And I just think it's such a like amazing, detailed, fun craft. Is there any treasure that you love that your father's made specifically for you? I love everything that dad's made for me but the most special thing is probably my engagement ring which he made with my boyfriend and it's got our initials carved in the stone and amazing enamelling on the side which is sort of hearts with daggers in them and our names and it's just really fun and cool and I really really love it. Um, I also have a silver skull ring I wear every day and a sort of skeleton hand ring that I also wear every day Um, and I absolutely love those and everything else I love too
1: When um, Elton John won his Oscar a couple of years ago did you work together on the idea of the rocket? Did he come to you and say please make me a rocket or did you do that together? The idea of it? A
0: bit of both. I mean, it's always been... I mean, early on, uh, Elton was not just a wonderful client, but incredibly supportive um, and obviously a huge friend. But he was also incredibly generous at getting other people in. And a lot of people, when they discover somebody, as it were, are a little bit solipsistic. They tend to sort of say, oh, you know, I don't want people to discover this restaurant. I don't want people to discover this shoemaker or whatever it is. He was quite the, obvious. He, the opposite. Rather, he wanted everybody to, uh, you know, find what I did uh, and buy it. And he really did. People would come in and said, "Elton, said, I should come and have a look at your stuff?" And you know, Gianni Versace and, and uh, Robin Williams and all sorts of people. He, he, you know, got to come and see me, and they became a, a really very very strong. Client base, and of course, other people saw them wearing it. But by, by again, just by default, because they were wearing them, they were photographed in them, people sort of started to ask. So, with the rocket brooch, it was very much obviously, he didn't know he was going to get an Oscar, so it was really um, him saying, You know, why don't we make a rocket? And I thought the rocket should be an obvious rocket rather than a sort of you know, working rocket. And the most obvious rocket is really the sort of rocket that appeared in films in the sort of 1920s or children would draw and so I thought I'd do a sort of more sophisticated version of that. It also meant it had a lot of diamonds in it which obviously um, <laughs> helped things. Or blast, or so. off. Yeah, blast, blast off
1: blast off with diamonds.
0: Yeah. And yeah, so uh, as often the case with, with Elton it's a sort of combined effort and, and in the early days he would just buy what I had but as our confidence in each other increased we sort of suggest things to each other and uh, and then you know other people that were friends of his and friends of theirs and friends of friends and whatever um, started to come in which before social media when we couldn't afford to sort of uh, advertise hugely in vogue <laughs> or whatever it, it was by far the best way for us to get seen and then as you know things started to come online and photographs appeared to people then people began to sort of see what we did. So it was, it was a, a really huge quantum leap. I mean, he's responsible for uh, an awful lot uh, of the good in my life.
1: I have to ask you quickly, because everybody knows um, how successful your daughter Emerald has been and indeed has won her own Oscar. Did you feel differently watching um, Elton go up on the stage? Well,
0: first of all, I'm amazed what well, my daughter's won an Oscar. <laughs> no one tells me anything.
1: Probably. I don't. I, I wanted to be the one to break it to you. Um, did you feel differently watching Elton go on stage wearing your rocket than, than Emerald wearing those magnificent diamond and Morganite earrings? How, how different did it feel?
0: Well, completely different, I suppose. But, but by the time uh, Elton won that Oscar, I mean, he'd won once before, but uh, I've known him so well, I've known him, you know, near enough 40 years. It's, it's a long, long time. So I suppose... Um, It's always weird seeing somebody who's a genuine friend on stage doing what they do. My first tendency is to say, what on earth is Fred doing up there? Somebody stop him. He's going to make a fool of himself. Then I realise, actually, I've come to see Fred in concert or whatever it is. So uh, there was a bit of that sort of thought with, with him, that sort of thing of going, oh, Lord, he's up there and he's wearing my brooch, which is always, you know, how you never get blasé about that. It's still the most incredible buzz to see somebody that you genuinely love and respect up there on the biggest stage in the world wearing a piece of your jewellery. Anybody who says it isn't is lying. It's just wonderful. It's wonderful for the craftsman. The craftsman who made it is sitting there, seeing the thing that was on their bench two weeks before is on television in front of millions. It's, it, it's a, an absolute buzz. But with Emerald, the, it was, the, the whole process was so bizarre and unexpected and genuinely surreal that I wasn't even aware of the jewellery. I mean, that, that was 15th on the, on the list. I'd forgotten she was even wearing any of my jewellery, which in fact was her own. Um, so it was a totally different thing. I mean, since I still, to this day, it seems absolutely absurd that, that um, she has. And in fact, when, when she brought it round to the house, we, we, we made her, she didn't want to, but she brought it round to the house uh, down in the country. The absurdity of seeing a sort of Oscar in the dining room of your house, you know, in the middle of the country, just seemed completely... It was like a Martian had landed. Um, And so the answer is totally different and uh, just um, completely bizarre. But luckily, she's been taught not to show off as well. So we had a hard time getting her to bring it round.
1: So if the the earrings were hers, had you given them to her, or has no, she no, actually bought them from Davy? No,
0: the, the earrings, I did lend her. We okay. never lend jewellery for these things, as you know. <laughs> Our boast is that, that people who are wearing the jewellery bought it for themselves, but I thought in her case... I
1: Make an exception.
0: I'd make an exception, but the other things she was wearing are things that she's either bought or been given, yes, and she's, a, she's actually um, a great collector of, as of, of, I say, my early work. It sounds rather grand, but when she finds things on, on, online that she really likes that I made in you know, the 80s or whatever, she's, she tends to buy it.
1: Well, Bruce Paltrow, famously, um, when Gwyneth Paltrow won an Oscar, bought her the Harry Winston diamond necklace that she'd worn to collect her best actress statuette. And I wondered if you were going to give the same, same um, uh, thing to Emerald that you thought, well, she must keep those Morganite Earrings now.
0: Not in a million years. <laughs> the, the answer is that, that both she and Keiko are unbelievably hard working uh, they've got a fantastic work ethic and they both do incredibly well
1: they don't arse around like their dad well
0: they, they do they, they've <laughs> perfected this idea of looking like they're arsing around when they're working incredibly hard it's the perfect British way uh, that, that you look like you're not trying very hard but in fact you're working you know it's the duck it's the or the, the swan perhaps I should say it's the, the elegant swan Underneath the feet are going incredibly fast. But, you know, it was... It was um, I have pointed out to them the antithesis of that, which is that when I was a young man, or their sort of age, if somebody made it big in the entertainment industry of any sort, the first thing they did, the very first thing they did, was they bought their mum and dad a house. You probably remember. <laughs> Adam Faith, Cliff Richard, those sort of people. Well, Mr Richard, now you've made a fortune. In the entertainment industry as a pop singer, what are you going to do? Well, I'm gonna buy my mama a house. <laughs> they all used to say that, or in as Faith's case, I'm gonna buy me Mama House, he would say. And they did. I've actually explained this to them, and they've said that tradition doesn't still exist, Dad. And I said, Well actually, traditions exist forever. That's the whole point of traditions. They go on to time immemorial, but Louise and I are still waiting. At any moment now, we're expecting a tap on the shoulder and a bungalow in West Byfleet will be ours.
1: I think it sounds like a good swap, the Morganite earrings for the bungalow.
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, Then no, now you're talking.
1: <laughs> and now we're going to hear from the actress, writer and director, Emerald Fennell, CEO's eldest daughter.
3: Any treasures you love that your father has made for you, Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I think when when me and my sister were qu- quite young, my father uh, gave us each a s- sort of plain charm bracelet, and as we got older, he added charms to it. Uh, and so mine has everything on it from uh, a little Eiffel Tower because I lived in Paris, um, a little Daisy because my best friend's name is Daisy. Um, you know, and it had books I loved and all sorts of things over the course of my life. Uh, and yeah, I absolutely love it. It's, it's my favourite thing in the world. Do I like wearing jewellery? I love wearing jewellery. I, I think I don't actually wear very much day to day because I, I, I don't know why, I suppose I really, really like to save it for kind of the evening. I like, probably my taste is slightly ostentatious, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I um, just like to go super sparkly, so um, I, wear, I wear a lot of evening jewellery, but not so much during the day. Has Dad influenced my work ethic? Absolutely. Both mum and dad have really influenced me and my sister a lot. I think they were both working all the time when we were children. And I think there was such a social element to, you know, building a business, building a brand like dad. So they were, you know, working all the hours that God sent and then going out in the evenings and, you know, meeting everyone and going to things. And, So we definitely grew up with the idea that you, you know, if you wanted something, you went out and you did it and you worked hard. And yeah, it's, I think, I think we all have a bit of um, workaholism in my family. Um, There's not a huge amount of relaxing (laughs) that goes on, a lot of telly watching. Um, But, but yeah, no, I think we're all pretty addicted to working. Dad more than any of us, probably. Do I think Dad chose the right career? Yes, absolutely. I think he would... <laughs> Dad never wants to admit it or acknowledge it, but actually I do believe that he's a genius and I do think that the things that he makes will be the sort of treasures of the future. Um, they're really extraordinary. It's not like anything else. And I think his the combination of, you know, craftsmanship and... And his imagination and love of design and also wearability, I, I I think he found the thing that he was born to do. Um, I mean, apart from anything else, wandering minstrel isn't really a job anymore. So um, I don't really think he would have had any other options. Do I think uh, he should give me the Morganite earrings I wore? <laughs> I wore on the red carpet at the Oscars yes yes I do actually I really do I think he I, I'm actually quite offended that he didn't offer to do that I might I might follow up that's a good tip thank you so much Carol
1: on if Jules could talk we love Elizabeth Taylor have you did you ever make anything for her
0: Yes we did we made a, a few things for her actually and, and in fact uh, one of the people that worked with me a salesman who's a very very understated and, and sweet man, um, before the days of mobile telephones, we sent him over there because we thought that he would be placid enough uh, and sweet enough to be able to take whatever Miss Taylor had to literally throw at him. So he went over there to show to us where? some jewellery. The
1: Dorchester? To,
0: no, 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 to LA. Oh, to LA. To a house in LA. And... We thought no more about it. The telephone rang and this voice said, It's me. I said, sorry, said, it's me, David. And I said, David? He said, David, I'll work with you. And I went, where are you? And he said, I'm sitting on Elizabeth Taylor's bed. And I said, well, what do you want to say? No, just that. And hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd asked him to put all the jewellery out on her bed and she bought a few things. And bizarrely, one of the, the um, brooches she bought, which was a snake brooch, a, a black and white diamond snake brooch, was auctioned. I think it was about £5,000 or something. And, you know, always she was expecting jewellery to be given to her, but we used to actually have to charge her, because I kept saying we're too poor to do that. Uh, which is when her interest in me, I think, you know, as anything other than the jeweller waned. It sold for 62000 in her sale of... Um, her jewellery. I am the world's expert in the jewellery trade on mistake-making and getting it wrong. I got an interview to go and see Tiffany's in the days when Tiffany's had designers other than Tiffany and other than Paloma Picasso, who wasn't actually there in those days, but, but Schlumberger and those people. And every now and again, they'd find, as I was then, a young designer, that they'd put into Tiffany's and give them a little stand with their name on it. You have to remember that in those days, Tiffany had one store in the entire world. The store on Fifth Avenue was the only shop they had in the entire world. It's almost impossible to believe that was the case. Now they're proliferate everywhere, but but that's all it had. And I got this thing, had to be there at eight in the morning. It was August in New York. And I said I'd walk very stupidly. I walked the whole way from wherever I was and had two hours sleep and I had the most appalling hangover. So by the time I got to Tiffany's, I was literally drenched. And I had this briefcase with me. And when I got in there, everyone said, are you okay?" Everyone else was absolutely sort of glowing with good health. And nobody of the people who'd arrived early had even a bead of sweat on them. And they obviously thought I'd walk past a fire hydrant or something. Anyway, I said, I'm I'm here to see Mr. Loring upstairs. John Loring, the the absolute sort of, you know, uh, historic figure that he is. I got in this huge lift, which is a service lift, because I'd gone in through the... Through the tradesman's entrance, and I got to the top floor, bing, it went. And through the gates, as they opened, I saw a water fountain. I thought, oh my God, this is what I need. I was so thirsty by this stage. And I pressed and I pressed the water fountain. The doors closed behind me, the lift disappeared. And just as this lady came up to me, incredibly elegant woman, said, Are you Mr. Fresnel? And I said, I am. And I stood up, and the water fountain started, and it started this jet straight at my trousers, a particularly awkward part of my trousers. And I was so hungover and so sort of immobile. I just looked at it for a bit. She looked at me and she said, I would move. And I said, I will. So I moved. By this time, I was completely translucent or transparent, rather, from the waist down. Did up my jacket and held my hands over my my important parts. Walked to the office. As I stood outside, there dripping water. She said, did you bring anything with you? And I said, "I'm, I'm sorry. She said, did you bring any samples, for instance? And I said oh my, yes, hang on a minute. I went back to the lift in panic. She with me, bing, went, the doors had opened. There were my, she went, they were in, I said, we always travel separately. Uh, security, you understand. She went, oh, really? So I took out the thing and went to see. After that, the whole thing went downhill with poor John Loring. He said, can I get you anything? And I said, I'd love a glass of water if I could. He said, you need water? And I said, well, <laughs> I do, I, I'm afraid, yes. And he said, uh, coffee? And I said, coffee would be wonderful and she bought the tiniest little coffee cup you've ever seen with a coffee cup and a spoon on it and the glass of water on a tray obviously to put down next to me but I was so thirsty I just took the glass off which of course meant the coffee came off and spilt on the floor didn't break as we watched it she dropped the tray which went off like a sort of rolling coin making this sort of drum beat noise I drank the water in one go and put it down she picked up the tray again, took the water and took the coffee off. And when he said, are you okay? And I said, I am, thanks so much. She sweetly came back as we sort of stared at each other with another tiny cup of coffee, which I put to my lips, burnt my lips, immediately on the coffee, put it down, making a terrible noise, time burnt lips and still covered in sweat and, and dripping on his carpet. And in this sort of, this terrible kind of uh, longer after this, this sort of quiet moment, when he looked at me and I looked at him, matted hair and whatever and red eyes and he said do you by any chance know the duchess of Roxborough?" <laughs> and quite by chance i was able to say well funny enough i saw her just the other day which had been for the first time picking up her son at the cricket match so i mean it didn't really sort of know her apart from that so he said i just knew you would i knew you would now let's see your samples and that's how it started and he said, we love these, they're so darling, these little pieces, we would love to have them here with your name and things, would that be okay? And I went, yes. I thought, yeah, it's some monumental joke. I mean, what neither is if you could all pranked or whatever? And he put this huge order down, got in the, you know, the woman who placed the orders, put in this order and all that sort of stuff and said, you're not represented anywhere else in New York, are you? And I said, no, <laughs> you know, uh, not at all, and left the building with my briefcase, which they had to hand me as I went out, because I'd left it there again. But I heard, when I stood outside the door, after they handed me the briefcase, I stood around thinking if I'd lost anything else. They obviously thought I'd walked away, and I heard them inside saying one to the other, what a strange young man. And the other woman, who's obviously very sophisticated and seen this sort of thing before, said, well, he's an artist, I think. And he said, yeah, even so. And she said, well, if we can dry him up in more ways than one, we might be okay with him. So there we are. You
1: give a lot back to so many. I mean, you do a Gilded Youth programme. I've judged with you on numerous occasions the Theo Fennell Award at the Royal College of Art each year. And then you generously um, allow the students to come and exhibit their work in the Fulham Road in your store. You're a co-founder of the Leopards, um, created to preserve skills and... um, to preserve ancient skills and craftsmanship in the industry and to mentor young people, because you see that as critical to its future. So uh, I thought, given that you do this for all these young people, give me three um, top tips of how they should, A, choose the right career. I think that's what we need to know first. How do they go about knowing? Like You had all these talents boiling away. How do you Zoom in on the one that should be yours.
0: The first thing is to really believe you have an absolute passion, a passion that's unquenchable for that particular thing. Without that, it's always just going to be a job. And it can be a job. There's nothing wrong with it being a job. There's nothing wrong with it being an enjoyable and a good job. But to really want to do it at the exclusion of everything else has to be the most important thing.
1: I think I've heard you before say do a business course.
0: What you have to do is know about the business, know about the trade, not just how things are made and not just where stones come from and not just all those things, but the pragmatic side of it. Because whether you're going to work for somebody else or work for yourself, which is what most uh, young people nowadays want to do, you've got to know what you're doing. And I had no idea what I was doing. So I put myself in a very, very enviable position of the person to be able to teach people what not to do. So what I feel I can do is give caveats to the young of who not to work for, uh, how to just present yourself because I think every, everyone, whatever trade they're going into should have gone on a course that teaches them how to do a CV, how to do and take an interview or, or, or perform an interview, how to, cost things, just how the basis of business works, how to do a very basic set of accounts, because having an all-round knowledge of the ways of the world, life skills, not just business skills, but life skills, is really important. Everyone can't be a tortured artist, and the amount of artists who really want to live in a garret and never sell anything is very, very few and far between. The the third point on what people should do if they're going to have a career is they need a voice. You know, you've got to find your own voice that you're comfortable with. Really, it is a tough, tough old thing. And to to get to anywhere near doing it for a living, you've got to go through an awful lot of, of, wade through a lot of hard days and hard nights. And you've got to learn, and you've got to really work hard because I think that tenacity that every actor, every creative person who's ever made any sort of name for themselves, uh, what they've done is they've worked very, very, very hard. They've had some lucky breaks. They've obviously got huge talent. But, you know, without the hard work, it all comes to nothing.
1: And the perseverance. Yeah,
0: perseverance. I think, you
1: know, you've got to be knocked down and go back again.
0: Tenacity. You've just got to hang on and hang on and take the knocks. Everyone's going to take knocks. You know, you really have got to.
1: So if I got a genie it, to come out in a bottle in front of you and say you can go back Theo you know if you had that opportunity to go back and be the rock star or be Britain's best known celebrity jeweler which would you choose uh
0: the latter because had I been a rock star as it's pointed out to me by almost everybody knows me I'd been dead by 35
1: good answer <laughs> Theo thank you so much Is that right
0: I've got to go there's no
1: fantastic I've got 10 to 3 I'm sorry for hours I'm so okay, sorry okay, okay. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwiltoncom slash talk. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. Please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. And please join us again in two weeks when I will be talking about the culture of snakes and serpents in art and jewellery. I'll be joined by Philip Mould, the English art dealer, gallery owner, art historian, writer and broadcaster from Fake or Fortune. And Amanda Triossi, the Rome-based jewellery historian. So please join us again for the next Jeweled Nugget, Snakes in Jewels. Goodbye. Goodbye. If Jules could talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Woolton.